I want to follow up on some of Ellen's ideas here, and, and essentially what we wanted to, to try to relay to you is some of the trends that we've seen between both the Cooperative Weather Observation Network, that is a standard for projection of climate change issues, not only in the United States, but in other areas of the, of the globe, and then what is the importance of some of the mesonets data that we have started to accumulate over the long history of Nebraska. And that offers us an opportunity to look beyond the simple temperature and precipitation relationships and look at some of the other important environmental variables, just as Ellen was talking, relative humidity, solar radiation, soil temperatures. All of those will have an implication in regards to how soon can we get out in the field, what type of irrigation scheduling should we expect in the western part of the state, the potential for yields based on what nighttime or uh, daytime temperatures are doing. And in order to get to that, of course, the first thing that we've been conditioned to um, look at in regards to the climate is essentially the U.S. assessment reports that are quoted every five years. And in fact, Don Wilhite and his group did a pretty good job of explaining some of the theory of global global climate change and also what some of those implications in the future might be. So for this first part, we're just going to kind of summarize in brief detail. We're not going to take a side one way or another. We're just going to present the data as it appears for our area of the country. And one of the most common um, things that we see is that we tend to put everything on an annualized basis and we need to really start to zero in on the seasonal components and their implications in terms of the energy balance, the availability of water as a precursor to what we might expect as we go into a given growing season. And so what I've done here is essentially try to summarize in really brief details some of what was brought out in this five-year report that whether or not we're going to see another five-year one with the new administration remains to be seen. But this is our latest attempt, at least to quantify where we think some of the problems that we're going to see with temperature and climate go into the future. So when you look at some of these projections, um, you'll see that we tend to see more positive roles in the four important criteria that we're looking at, minimum, maximum temperatures, precipitation, and storm activity. But you also notice that in terms of confidence intervals, basically looking at the temperatures, the highest uh, confidence interval going forward with a more moderate uh, confidence in regards to precipitation. And fully, if you look at the integration of the different models over, over time, looking at what they're projecting, there really is about a 50-50 split in the numerical models in regards to where we expect precipitation. Well, why am I worried about each one of these individual components? Because our distribution pattern of precipitation and temperatures here in the state of Nebraska. Oh, I'm sorry. <laughs> Do I have to start over? Okay. Gotcha. So as we look at the, proje the projections of these, of these uh, signals in terms of the season, we need to understand what the distribution of our precipitation is with the season because it does go a little bit farther in assigning risk. The second thing that we need to understand is that when you look at the five-year national uh, review of the uh, climate, essentially we're pigeonholed into a region that covers a multi-state area. And what happens in the latest projections when we look at us in the region with Texas is that we tend to be dominated in terms of high temperature 
conditions or rejection for high temperature conditions simply because we're dominated by a land area that is excessively much warmer than we are here in Nebraska. So as we go forward, we have to start taking these into consideration. So when we start to look at these positive trends in terms of temperatures, we, the models remain consistently high in terms of their confidence intervals. But when we get down to the more important criteria like precipitation, evapotranspiration, we tend to see much more of a moderate confidence interval. And as we get down even to some of the more, uh, more extreme type of uh, variables that we look at, particularly soil moisture, even though we say we have a moderate confidence interval in the projection of these events in the future, the bottom line is our soil moisture monitoring across the United States is very suspected best. We're only using isolated points. And our numerical models really don't have a way to initialize the beginning conditions so that we know whether or not what we're accurately projecting is correct. So and when you look at these potential impacts, this is kind of what Tyler's is group has is, is started to do in terms of climate issues, is to start to think of the interaction of these different events, not so much concentrating on whether temperature is going up over time, but what are the different conditions you might expect to see in any given season in Nebraska? It's not always going to be warm and dry. Some years it might be warm and wet. Other years it might be cold and wet, cold and dry. And those interactions that really drives what the farmers himself is going to try to do over the upcoming season. Secondarily, he's also in competition with his neighbors across the Corn Belt. And what's good for the goose necessarily doesn't mean it's good for the gander. In Nebraska, we may see opposite trends in one side of the state compared to the other side of the state once we start zeroing in on more shorter time scales. So I'm going to skip by the, the projections. The main, the, excuse me, the, the fall trends. The main point that when we look at these numerical projections out into the future is to look at these relative percent changes. And what you will notice just by looking at one of these scenarios is that the most, the most significant changes in terms of our precipitation is projected to be during the winter and the spring period, whereas the summer we're in an area that is a northward extent of an area projected to be well below normal in terms of precipitation. Well, that's all fine and dandy. But if we were looking at this from a standpoint of Nebraska compared to California, what we will figure, find out is that the precipitation in California is at a different time scale in terms of when we see the heaviest precipitation compared to Nebraska. And as you go to other parts of the country, we see the same results. So in order to fully understand our contributions, what I've given here is a distribution between our wettest location in the state and our driest locations of the state, basically the southeast to the northwest. We lose about one inch of moisture every 25 miles we head in the northwest direction across the state. But more importantly, when you look at the relative contributions of the seasonal components, the one thing you will notice is that in the wintertime, about 8% of our precipitation, is, uh, of our annual precipitation, occurs through this three-month period. Now, if we see a 10 to 20% projected increase in this precipitation, really really means about a quarter of an inch increase in northwestern Nebraska versus maybe a half inch increase in southwest Nebraska. But once you get into the middle of the summer and you talk about a 20% reduction, well, when you look at eastern Nebraska, now we're talking two and a half or three inches. Now, keep that in the back of your mind because we're going to show you some relative projection changes that have occurred based on our mesonets. More importantly, when you break out the contribution of the growing season and the non-growing season, what we see is two-thirds of our moisture falls during our growing season 
and one-third on average falls outside of our growing season. So when you look at this middle column, the first number that you're seeing, if you see a single number, is for basically the average of all of these conditions are fairly similar. But as you get into the March and May contribution, what you will notice is that in the northwest part of the state, they have a much greater component in the spring in terms of their annual contribution compared to the southeastern portion of the state. And so we see a fairly relative contribution during the heart of the summer, but once we go to the fall period, 18% of our moisture in the northwest goes into building subsoil moisture, whereas about 26% of the moisture in the southeastern part of the state goes into building subsoil moisture. And so those become a very important criteria in whether we have a drought risk or not. And what am I getting at? Well, when we start to look at that in critical fall and spring period, what we know is, is that that's a third of a contribution. And there was some simplified research done back in the early 80s here at the university by Ralph Neal, who looked at, well, can I come up with a simple process of projecting out uh, what my associated risk during the growing season is? And what he found is, and in our dryland environment in eastern Nebraska, we want to see about 12 inches of moisture from October 1st through the end of April. And normal precipitation, we should hit pretty close to baseline yields. But for, one inch, for each inch we're shy during that fall and spring period, coupled with normal precipitation, plotting all the data, we see about 2.5% reduction in our baseline yields. Well, if we get, start to get in a three to four inch deficit, of course, we're facing automatically with normal precipitation right around a 10 to a 15% yield reduction in terms of a projection. Well, what is the odds that we're going to make up those three inches? Well, when you look at the three inch deficits here, on uh, the left-hand side of the screen, that 16% likelihood is assigned to the northwest part of the state, whereas the southeastern part of the state, we have about a 35% likelihood. So essentially, once we get beyond that three-inch range, we're really only less than a one-third chance that we're going to make up those entire deficits. Now, if you think logically from Western Nebraska's standpoint, knowing these facts alone before even going into the growing season and knowing what my odds are that I have less than a 16% chance up in the northern part of the panhandle of making up these deficits, I've already got myself one step farther than my counterparts that I'm farming against, meaning that I already know that most likely I'm going to need additional irrigation to meet the demands of that growing crop. Well, there's two ways to approach this. Either I push the water on in an unlimited fashion, or I start to scale back some of my planting density, basically going to a lower population to try to conserve that water. And that's how we're going to have to start to think about these issues, because if we look at the state of Nebraska, and this is just these typical uh, National Center for Environmental Information, which used to be the National Climatic Data Center, Looking at the projection of temperatures over time, what we see for the state of Nebraska is a 1.4 degree change. Now understand this is a weighted function. The state average is not based on an average of all the stations in the state. It's based on the average of the stations within each climate district. The two largest climate district contributors in this state are the Panhandle and North Central Nebraska. Between the two of them, they represent 40, almost 45% of the total land area of the state. So much of this the change that we see over time is dominated by the surface land area of western Nebraska and less of an impact from eastern Nebraska in the total, the total scheme of things. However, when you start scaling this down into a greater detail and start to look at what are the individual components, we see some different results. So 
we've backing away from the annual. We're going to look at just the seasonal component of the January-December trend. What we see is about a 0.9 degree temperature change for our maximum temperatures over time. But if we look at minimum temperatures, what we see is a 2 degree increase. Well, if we know that the western part of the state is the largest contributor, the most likely scenario is that they're going to have the most sizable component unless the remaining districts in the state are just outrageously colder or warmer than what the western two or those northwestern two climate districts show. But more importantly, even though we have this linear trend, and Ellen has picked on this, what we see is a high degree of variability from season to season. But to me, the most important component is what is the range that we are seeing between this historical record on the tails, basically your lowest values and your highest values. And within this 100-year data set, the average minimum temperature for this three-month period on a statewide basis has varied upwards of pretty much six to seven degrees. If we take this a little bit farther and start to zero in on eastern Nebraska, what we see is a slightly different trend. We see that the maximum temperature over this period has went up two and a half or 2.1 degrees, but in the same, oops, same token, when we look at the most recent trend, what we see is a decreasing trend. So one of the things that has been problematic in terms of trying to bring this attention to the public has been the conflicting sides of the equation. We know that there's a certain percentage of, the, of those that believe in global climate change and those that don't believe in global climate change where we're not going to change their minds regardless of whatever we present here. But in this situation, sometimes it pays to listen to both sides of the equation. And what you're hearing from our producers is that we're seeing some changes that do not conform to some of these longer-term projections. That's simply because they're recognizing that intricate relationship between those seasons in terms of their production. They're also not worrying about a 100-year or 50-year trend. They're more, more concerned, at least in the near term, in, a, in basically in a marketing, they're planting their crop and marketing it over a two-year cycle. So the shorter-term time periods become more important to them than they do for those of us that are worried about implications as we get 50 years down the road. So when we look at this implications, what I would look at this is that for the East Central Nebraska Climate District, I'm looking at a value in 1979 where the average temperature through this period was 24 degrees. Whoops, I got to, excuse me, go back here a second. I apologize for that. And the next year, the average temperature is 40 degrees. So in a one-year average temperature trend, we see nearly a 19-degree average temperature change during this period for this important variable. And that is what we have to start to try to think about logically, is how can we match up each of these events, and do they give us any predictability into the future about what we might expect? So let's just take this one step further. Let's compare a station in eastern Nebraska to one in the southwestern part of the state. The reason I bring this up is but what you're going to see is that trends are not consistent from east to west. And we need to recognize that if we're looking at something in eastern Nebraska in terms of a climate variability issue, it may not be coinciding with western Nebraska. So for average temperatures, we see an actual decreasing trend from our co-op sites that does match up with our mesonet sites of a cooling trend. Kind of seen it in that east central division for the division as average. You go out to western Nebraska in the spring, we're looking at a two, in, two degree increase. So fully a, a two and a half degree differential between these two 
stations that are separated by a little over 300 miles. More importantly, and the issue that I think is most important as far as I'm concerned, is look at the precipitation trend during the spring in eastern Nebraska. This is, on a, this is calculated out to a, a century trend. Now, so essentially what it has said over this 30-year period, we've seen an actual increase of an inch of moisture during the spring period. And if we trend that out for a century trend, we're gaining three inches. Three inches at this time of the year can be a real nightmare, particularly if you get conditions such as this. Now, we look at also looking at our temperature trends. We've been concerned consistently about how our minimum temperatures have acted. We've seen these warming trends during this late winter period. And yet, when we look at the minimum temperature trend for Ashton, we see these decreasing trends. We're at, well, at the same token, we're seeing that our foreign soil temperature depths are actually hitting that magical 50-degree mark almost two weeks earlier than they did back in the early 80s. So this is kind of a confusing, if you think about it, why is one going down over time, but the other one is showing us hitting that threshold quicker? And the reality situation is, is that what we're kind of seeing, and I suspect we're seeing, is that we're getting warmer quicker but then we kind of stagnate. And we're getting this with the last couple of years of this typical example is where we've had these warm late winters and then we just kind of stay stuck in neutral for a month or two with rainy, cloudy conditions before we take off into our regular growing season. And, and, if, and if we do not recognize these type of situations, we're gonna be doomed for failure in terms of predictability. So one of the things that I, I do uh, think that Tyler has done an excellent job in is bringing the agricultural community in to isolate these type of problems. What is your best years? What is common with those climatically? What causes you problems? And that's what the climate issues team is trying to do. So if we take this a step farther and look at those general trends and start to look at the mesonet trends, and this is the uniqueness that we have with these state-run mesonets is that for Nebraska, we have one of the oldest, if not the oldest, mesonet in the nation. We now have a subset of our total mesonet that has at least 30 years of data. So there's 13 of these 60-plus stations that have been in long enough that we can start to examine a 30-year trend. But more importantly, in five more years, we're going to jump that number up to about 37 of our stations. Why this is important is we can start to get a, a, an isolation of what is happening across the state and hopefully we can see some gradation in those types of patterns. So to give you kind of an idea of what we're looking at, if you look at the mead soil temperatures have a declining trend even though we're hitting those points earlier in the year of that magical 50 degree mark, but again timing of your period is important. If you were to extract out the first four years of this data set and only looked at this area here, what you will notice is, is that slope almost completely disappears. The starting of our data set happened to coincide with the drought years that we've seen here in western Nebraska and eastern Nebraska during the 83 and then of course the 88 and 89 drought. So we're kind of influencing the starting point of this measurement. If you look at the solar radiation trend, you see this 25% reduction in solar radiation from the Mead Mesonet. Now we know reality-wise that we haven't lost 25% of our solar radiation over this 30-year period. So once again, we're starting with artificially high points. 
But what I find interesting is, is as much as we saw, talked about 2012 in terms of the drought implications, let's go all the way back to 1988 and look at the solar radiation from this year. This would be a bad situation for eastern Nebraska, but for western Nebraska, this might actually be a net benefit because they are getting that solar radiation as long as the temperatures at night cool down. Of course, we do a much better grain filling process. And in fact, if we look at 2002, we've seen unbelievable yields coming out of western Nebraska. As long as the water wasn't limiting and those late applications kept going, the, we were getting dry enough during the nighttime hours with not high relative humidity levels that we were cooling down to allow the respiration to take place whereas a crop in eastern Nebraska burn up because we weren't able to apply water. But more importantly, let's look at a fall relative humidity trend. Well, if I'm gonna be harvesting crops and seeing a downward trend over time, might be good news in terms of getting my crop out, crop out and letting Mother Nature do more of a job for me, but I still have to contend with these large changes from year to year. Excuse me. So if we try to summarize just a general trend instead of showing you a bunch of maps, this is what kind of the preliminary data is showing. Now we're in the process of looking at this in terms of confidence levels and statistically whether or not these are highly, cor highly correlated or that we, we can say with a great deal of confidence that they do exist. But what you will notice is, is that there seems to be clear divisions between the eastern part of the state and the western part of the state. And so the hope is that we can start to quantify these to much greater detail and figure out what works for western Nebraska, may not necessarily work for eastern Nebraska, but also open us up for the idea of what do these relationships mean for different areas of the state. One of the persistent problems that we've had and heard from northeastern Nebraska is that their soybean yields do not track the remainder of the state. They just not, have not seen the increase in their yields compared to other areas of the state. When you start to examine in detail, what you see is a little bit more cloudiness, a little bit cooler conditions up in that region, which may be a driving factor. So if we're gonna think about research into the future, we have to start looking at the implications not only of a warmer, drier pattern, but the interaction of all these different variables that occur over time. And all of these graphs, what you've seen, whether they're going up or down, is the amount of variability around them. It just doesn't follow a linear fashion. We're going to see drastic changes from year to year, and we're going to have periods, just as Ellen said, we're going to have high variability and low variability. Being able to project those ahead of time will go a long way. So as we proceed through this process, there's a several things that are going on. First of all, I think it's incumbent on all of us to recognize the valid arguments from both sides, both those that are looking at more longer-term projections and those that are more consistent with the shorter-term projections that are living the life, so to speak, if we can recognize and give everybody a voice in this equation, I think we can come to some fairly significant solutions to these issues, and that's where the UNL climate issues teams come in. But more importantly, I'm not going to take any of the thunder away from Tyler, uh, NEMA, the Nebraska Emergency Management, is going through their five-year state hazard mitigation plan. And so the climate issues, along with isolating those variables that cause not only agricultural but all of our sectors of our economy problems both in terms of climate and natural hazards is going to go a long way to identifying how we can manage risk into the future. And that's exactly what NEMA is trying to do is to try to isolate the extreme events so that if we're prepared for those, the rest of this game becomes much easier as we go into the future if climate change happens or if climate change doesn't happen 
we are now getting at more at the variability issue, which is a true risk assessment. So on top of that, we're going to probably be doing an amendment of the complete climate assessment response committee um, regulations as we proceed with the NEMA co data comes in. We'll start to incorporate that into the state mitigation plan. So we're slowly evolving. I think this will pick up speed as we identify these things. So one of the things that I always said that we need to be cognizantly aware of in agriculture as we treat agriculture going into the future is, is that no matter how convoluted we attempt to define a problem, it's incumbent us to keep the old KISS simple or KISS principle. Simple, direct, we need it to be pertinent, and we need it to be easy to use from the agricultural community. Because if we do not come up with these simple processes, we're most likely going to look good in a scientific publication, but we're not going to see that uh, well absorbed by the agricultural community. So I think as we go through this process in the future, what we need to really address is how do we approach this as a climate risk mitigation tool so that way we don't have to pick sides of the equation. We can still recognize that climate change is likely to happen, that human component is an important portion of that climate change, but natural variability also is. And so by looking or trying to identify our greatest risk under certain climate scenarios, that will allow us to progress into those type of re remedies that appropriate into the future and will also help us to essentially lower our overall risk going forward and potentially and hopefully increase the profitability of our agricultural sector without the help of the federal government. Because I think that that is one of the things that probably is facing us into the future is that if we look at the crop insurance program that the government has slowly been trying to pull back their contribution. So by identifying, as is Elwin's case, what works best in your solution will go a long way to saving the producer from wasting that excessive money on a product that probably will have no real bearing on his bottom line compared to somebody in another part of the country. With that, I'm just going to turn it over to Tyler because I know we are very, very short on time, and then I can do the questions at the end if we have any. Does that sound fair?